All eyes are on the Russian-Ukraine border right now, where over 100,000 Russian troops are amassed. US President Biden has warned Russia against invading the neighbouring Eastern European country. Russian President Putin denies having such intentions. But how did it come to this? And is this a simple case of Russian aggression, or is Russia protecting its strategic interests? Former senior Australian diplomat and author of the book Return to Moscow, Tony Kevin, is currently in Moscow, and he rejects the US narrative about Russian expansionism. Tony is a regular traveller to Russia and is sympathetic to their position, a view dramatically at odds with the Australian and US governments. He's in Moscow in part to deliver a lecture at the Diplomatic Academy of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Russian Federation, an organisation which former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd has also addressed. When we spoke several days ago, no invasion had occurred. Russians in Moscow, according to Tony Kevin, have other things on their mind than the tensions between Russia and Ukraine. I've been in Moscow now for five days. I'm here for a month. And my feeling is that people are much more worried about COVID than they are about the situation in Ukraine and in relation to the West. Most Russians are inclined to trust their governments. And I think they feel that the government is handling the situation on Ukraine and in relation to the West well. But can I say something about COVID? Because I think it's, it's pretty important. It's very much on people's minds here. Reuters put out daily statistics. And at the moment in Russia, there have been 700,000 deaths from COVID. And that's the second ranking country in the world for deaths from COVID. The top ranking is US at 911,000. So what's happening right now New infections are skyrocketing. There's now over 171,000 new infections a day. But Russians seem to be coping with this quite well because most of them are Omicron and there are not that many people going to hospital or dying. The death rate peaked in the, in the end of November at nearly 3,000 deaths a day, which is huge, of course. But now the deaths have gone down to around 700 deaths a day. And Russians have learned to live with that. But it, it's affected daily life in all kinds of ways. So people are more subdued in the streets. There's, there's not as much chatter and laughter as I'm used to from previous visits. Yeah, well, that's interesting observation because all we are hearing at the moment from Russia is obviously the story about the Ukraine and the Russian troop build up on the border. So what are they feeling they feel confident that their government has sent a, a very strong deterrent signal. And by putting 130,000 battle-ready troops in areas around Ukraine, to the north in Belarus, to the west, and to the south in Crimea, they've sent a very graphic message that they're ready to do whatever they want to do, basically, in Ukraine. And Western military planners have have absorbed this message. There's no question that if Russia wanted to invade Ukraine, they could be in Kiev in 24 hours. But having sent that deterrent signal, the Russians, I think, are saying uh, or thinking that the most important thing for them now is two things. Firstly, in relation to Ukraine, 
to protect the Russian-speaking people in the rebel provinces of Lugansk and Donetsk. And certainly, Russia would be ready to help those provinces respond very vigorously militarily if um, Ukraine tried to recapture those provinces. And they've tried twice already, and both times they've failed. The Russians, I don't think, would use an attempted invasion of those provinces by Ukraine as a pretext to take all of Ukraine. They don't really want Ukraine. They, they think it's a very sad country, pretty much a, a failed state. There's been huge emigration from Ukraine, a huge demoralization, and Nazi elements, the Ukrainian Nazi elements have, have assumed positions of, of real power from which they can intimidate people. I, I think if the truth be known, most Ukrainians, more than 50%, would be very glad to be part of the Russian world again, not necessarily to lose their political independence, but to regain an ability to get on with Russia in a normal way. But the trouble is they're, they're intimidated because very strong elements are driving uh, the Ukrainian government. The Ukrainian government is essentially a puppet of Washington and Brussels in different ways and it doesn't have agency. How does Russia feel that their security interests have been infringed upon by the West that's led to this situation? Is this entirely about NATO and about the prospect of Ukraine and possibly Georgia joining NATO? Is it fundamentally what this comes down to? It's pretty much the result of 30 years of broken promises by the West to Russia not to expand NATO. There's, there's no doubt that in 1991, both President Reagan and his successor, President George H.W. Bush, gave firm undertakings to Russia that in exchange for allowing the reunification of Germany, which of course then Germany became the leading military power in Western Europe, NATO would not expand to the east of Germany. And those promises were repeatedly broken, first by Bill Clinton in 1996, when he invited Poland, Hungary and Czechoslovakia to join in NATO, and then by successor presidents right through to the point where now Russia is surrounded on the West by NATO countries, with the exception of Ukraine and Georgia, which NATO made very clear that they wanted to invite them in. So Russia sees a string of Western military threats in very close proximity to its main population heartland, which is European Russia. The Ukrainian border is only 500 kilometers from Moscow. Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, very small states, but they still are repositories for, for NATO military power. And Russians are angry about this and they're fearful about it. And they are determined in the last few months to, to put an end to this, to try to demilitarize the adjacent countries near their borders and to try to create a, a better security climate for all of Europe through having a demilitarized zone to their west. Now, the, America and NATO have rejected this out of hand. They have said that Every European country has sovereignty and they have sovereignty to choose who they align with and uh, which countries they choose to have military exercises with. For America, that's the end of the story. For Russia, it is not the end of the story. For Russia, it's an unacceptable situation. And as far as 
the West and America is concerned. Further to that, they express the view that Russia has expansionist intentions in Eastern Europe, that the troop build-up on the border is a sign of blatant intimidation to the Ukrainians, and as you say, that Ukraine is perfectly entitled, if they wish, to join NATO. Well, it's not a view that Russia feels comfortable with, and the best metaphor, of course, is, is by analogy. Would America feel comfortable if Canada and Mexico did what um, the Americans and, and the NATO view is that the, the countries adjacent to Russia should be doing? I'm sure that's not true. In fact, America even has a thing called the Monroe Doctrine that it says that, and Biden just recently reasserted it, that all of Latin America is its, quote, front yard, unquote, and that America will not tolerate any challenge to its sphere of influence effectively in Latin America. So what's source for the goose is source for the gander, most Russians would feel. And they would say, well, it's not unreasonable to say that these little countries to our west should come to a, a sensible, peaceful accommodation with Russia in order that normal economic relations can resume. These are all broken countries. I mean, Ukraine is a failed state. The emigration from Ukraine over the last decades has been enormous. It's been virtually depopulated of its young, skilled people. They've, they've fled as immigrants to, to Europe and also to Russia, according to their choices. Ukraine's a corrupt little place run by oligarchs. It's a, a reservoir of cheap labour for, for the European community. I think there are, there are hopes in the European community that Ukraine will replace China as a low-cost source of cheap labour and cheap uh, factory uh, locations so that you can have a white Christian community of um, basically underpaid labour to the east of Europe. So that's the European strategic vision. The American strategic vision is that, um, well, basically the militarization of Ukraine, that it's obviously geographically advantageous to have a highly militarized country, even if it's a broken state, to Russia's west and south. So what sense do you get about the effect of Putin's meeting with the French president, Macron? Has it had any positive impact, do you think? I mean, Macron made the statement, there is no security for Europeans if there is no security for Russia, which apparently got some people uh, worked up. Uh, any sense at the moment that that meeting has been a circuit breaker? Yes, I, I, I think it has in important ways. And Putin has already said that he regards Macron as a, as a serious interlocutor, unlike the Americans and the NATO chief Stoltenberg, who really only know how to basically lay down ultimatums and affirm their positions. They don't know how to negotiate. Whereas Macron is a very skilled negotiator and uh, he's looking for ways forward with Russia. And somehow or other, he's trying to create space for some normalization of the Ukrainian situation. And they're going on talking. Now, of course, Macron has to face great suspicion from the Americans and from NATO that he's letting down the Western side. So he has, to, he has to tread very carefully. How much of the West's attitude toward Russia can be explained by Russia's closer ties with China? Is this part of a bigger geopolitical 
set of alignments? And, and is Australia, for example, treating Russia as a proxy for China, with whom obviously our relations have badly soured? With respect, I don't, I don't see that as the issue. I think Russia has moved towards China very much in reaction to the Western hostility towards Russia. And let me bring this element in because it's an essential element uh, in the way I see things. The West has become imprisoned in its own false narrative about Russia. And this, this false narrative goes back a very long time indeed. In my book, Return to Moscow, I talk about it quite a bit. The West has always seen Russia as, as too big and too threatening. And the West has always wanted to preserve its, its own global hegemony, its colonial hegemony, by keeping Russia down. I argued in my lecture in Moscow yesterday that the most important strategic alliance for Australia today is Five Eyes, which started as an intelligence sharing community and has now become essentially a strategic policy community comprising US as leader, UK as deputy, Canada, Australia, and the fifth eye, New Zealand, has uh, fallen away. We are in this narrative and it's become so pervasive and so powerful that it's very hard for people like me to ask people to consider other alternative possibilities, other alternative ways of looking at the world. And so we have this way of looking at Russia as a sort of a predator waiting to pounce. Is that is that a hangover from the Cold War, do you think? Yes, it is. Russians believe they, they themselves decided to abandon communism, the experiment that failed, and to move forward with democracy. And at that point, Russia wanted to be friendly with the West and wanted to be open to the West. Unfortunately, the West was caught in its own inertia of the Cold War, and they couldn't resist basically trying to weaken Russia even after the end of communism. And so you had these um, agencies in Russia who were basically trying to turn the economy upside down, demoralize the people, lose faith in themselves. Russia went through terrible years from 1985 to 2000. They call them the second time of troubles. The first one was, was after Ivan the Terrible died. And the memory of those years and, and how Putin came in in 2000 and helped put Russia back on its feet and restore its self-confidence and its self-respect, these are very strong memories. It's very hard for people in the West to, to understand that there is this alternative narrative. Tony, you're a friend of Russia. You've uh, travelled there, I think, four times in the last six years. Tell us about why you keep returning what you love about the place and, and the people there. And I suppose more broadly, tell us a bit about your interest in Russia, which goes back, I should say, your connections to Russia to the late 60s and early 70s, when I think it was one of your first diplomatic postings back in the days when you were a diplomat. Yes, Russia was my very first diplomatic posting at the height of the Cold War from 1969 to 71. It was a very paradoxical time because I was, of course, loyal to my side and we, we lived in a bubble in Moscow. We felt we were surrounded by the enemy and uh, we had to watch our security above all. But we still managed to find ways of learning to appreciate some of the good things Russia had to offer, which even then, in the, the grey old days of, of, of Brezhnev communism, were wonderful. I mean, the, the music, the theatre, the restaurants, the skiing, 
the walks in the country in summer. A wonderful place. And I, I came through Russian music and literature and, and art, of course, the wonderful museums then too, to really appreciate that, that, that Russia is one of the great world civilizations. And I sort of put that knowledge aside for the rest of my career. I went on to, to have another 25 years in foreign affairs, finishing up as ambassador to Poland and then to Cambodia. But after I retired, I, I managed to start thinking that outside the square again, if you like. I was no longer bound by the, the, the official narrative that I'd obviously been bound by when I was working as an Australian diplomat. And more and more over the years, I came to realize that Russia was a country that was much maligned, much misunderstood and hard done by. And so when I went on my first trip to Russia in 2016 as an individual citizen, I was ready to look at the country with, with an open mind. I've more and more come to admire Russians and um, the way they live and the way they function. They've, they've had this incredible trauma of World War II and, and they saved the world in World War II from Nazism. Mm. There's no question. If it hadn't been for the Russian um, sacrifice of 26 million people over a four-year brutal war, we, we, we would not be where we are today. We might, we might all be speaking German and waving Nazi flags in mm. those. You have been very fortunate to find yourself in positions at historic moments of time. I mean, as I said, posted to Moscow as a young diplomat in the late 60s, early 70s, but perhaps even more significantly than that, you returned to Eastern Europe as ambassador to Poland of the Czech Republic and Slovakia after, just after the Iron Curtain comes down and the Soviet Union collapses from 91 to 94. So you're in that part of the world when the Soviet Union dissolves and the Russian Federation is established. Just tell us a bit about your memories from that time and perhaps what you learnt, if anything, from that period. I was in Poland in my first year when the, um, the attempted coup against Gorbachev took place, when there was a very strong attempt to, to wind the clock back, to, to, to bring back the old communist regime that Gorbachev was trying to, to change. It failed which was the end of Gorbachev, and it was the, the opportunity for Yeltsin to take control. And uh, so all that happened while I was in Warsaw, which was, as you say, an incredibly good vantage point. So you're in Moscow at the moment. You, I think last night, delivered a lecture at the Diplomatic Academy of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Russian Federation. This is an institution, I should say, that Kevin Rudd has uh, also addressed just give us an idea of what you spoke about in your talk last night. First of all, I, I found out last night that since Kevin Rudd, there's been one other Australian visitor speaker there, and that is Hugh White. So um, they, were pretty, they were pretty interested in what Hugh White had to say. I started off by talking about the similarities between Russia and Australia, and these are very profound similarities, which we in Australia and possibly people in Russia are not necessarily aware of. So I spoke about similarities of geography, of demography, that we're both outliers of both Europe and of Asia, that we both have a complex colonial and imperial in Russia's case, in our case, colonial and multicultural history, 
that we've both relied on skilled immigration and capital-rich immigration to to en enhance and, and enrich and deepen and diversify our countries, that we've both shared radical democratic histories. Russians admire the way Australia was a pioneer of feminism, of um, trade unionism, of uh, universal suffrage. And, uh, and of course, there were the strong communist uh, party links during the communist period. And, and finally, that, that we both have a tendency outside small dissident groups to trust in the integrity of our governments. And this can both be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I believe that in Russia's case at the moment, it's a good thing because Russia is under attack from ruthless enemies from, from the West who really want to bring the country and its system down by every possible means. So it's a good thing that the dissidence in Russia is very small and very contained. In my country, Australia, I think it's, it's the reverse. It's unfortunate that so many people unthinkingly trust our government's narrative and don't critically examine it because we're not under any threat. And we, we have an opportunity to move to a much more rational foreign policy in which we don't divide the world into friends and enemies, but we um, rely on the United Nations collective security system, the Security Council, and we cultivate good relations with our neighbours and, and with our region. So a friend to all and an enemy to none. And I, I think it's interesting that some of Australia's leading political figures, uh, not only Gough Whitlam, but Malcolm Fraser, followed by Paul Keating and followed by Bob Carr in New South Wales, have in retirement come to see the world pretty much as I see it now. But somehow or other, when people are trapped in their jobs, even prime ministers, the narrative prevails. Australia really needs to find its home in Asia. Our home is not in Europe. Our home is not in England. England is the motherland for some of us, but it's not the motherland for many of us. And one of my points in my lecture was to say that there's this paradox at the moment that Australia is a multicultural country of rich diversity, but it's ruled by a, a pale, male, stale Anglo-Celtic elite. And uh, we have to somehow break the bonds of the American alliance. I don't mean we have to become an American enemy, of course not, but we have to learn to stand on our own feet I made the assertion very bluntly in my lecture last night that since 1996, Australia has lost its sovereignty. So whether we can recapture it after a change of government, it will take a very long time because we're, we're very locked in now to seeing the world the way Washington elite sees it. And I'm, I'm saying this not as a, an opponent of America. I mean, I, at, at the level of people, I love the Americans. I love of the British. But unfortunately, the, 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 the elites in those countries have taken Australia down a very dangerous path. We are a top-ranked nuclear target if, if there should ever be the disaster of nuclear war between Russia and the West or between China and the West, although we threaten nobody. And uh, so there are, there are big changes, I hope, coming in Australian political discussion. And what I bring to that discussion, my particular edge is, I suppose, my, my knowledge of Russia and my love and respect for Russia, which is pretty rare in Australia these days. There aren't too many people out there who are openly expressing the sorts of views that I express. 
And is there much interest in Russia toward Australia? I know in your talk you said that you believe Russia should take the longer view of the potential for rewarding dialogue and closer relations with Australia, but I, I just wonder, are we even on the radar as far as Russia is concerned and, and Russians are concerned? It's a very good question. We're certainly not high on the radar, <laughs> but Australia is certainly a, a second-rank diplomatic interest for them at this time, simply because we are so subservient to the United States' view of the world. We will become more interesting to them if we show some signs of foreign policy independence. Because as I was talking about our similarities, we both have a huge amount potentially to offer each other. We both are on the periphery of this great new Asian economic heartland of the world. We share our affinities to the West and our affinities to the East. We can talk to each other very usefully about these things. But we have to take the first step of, of, of cutting the umbilical cord of not just expecting all, all insights and wisdom to come from Washington. Former senior Australian diplomat and author of the book Return to Moscow, Tony Kevin. More details about Tony and our earlier speakers are available on the Big Ideas homepage. That's it for today. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.